Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me, Bill Arnold. I'm looking forward to this time with David Murray. He's uh, my guest. He joined the program a little bit early, which I was very grateful for. And now he's uh, going to be my first guest in this half hour. And then coming up in the second half hour, Dr. Ken Blanchard will be with us. You may know him as the one-minute manager, author, co-author. He's written about 60 books. But David Murray has got a couple of books that we're chatting about today. We got started right before the break with a book called Reset, Living a Grace-Paced Life in a Burnout Culture. I also want to get him to talk a little bit about an earlier book he wrote uh, called Christians Get Depressed Too. I want to try to have some encouragement for believers listening today who, who might be a little on the blue side. Maybe the, the old depression word has kicked in a little bit and you're feeling a little flat. And the reality of God's joy, even in very challenging and difficult circumstances, which I know many are in right now. So I want to be completely sensitive to that. So uh, David is my guest. Uh, I will take a little break, and then when I come back, I will uh, bring him right back into the program. Uh, Dr. David Murray is the professor of Old Testament and Practical Theology at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary in Grand Rapids. So we'll uh, take a short break and bring him on. Connecting faith to life. Faith Radio. The way in which he showers his love upon people is not a little trickle spurting out now and then, but he has poured out his love. He has showered his love upon us in order that we might shower his love upon those who seem the most unlikely and undeserving recipients of it. Show me how to spend a life. Yeah. Each day, together, growing in our faith, Faith Radio. Hard times call for valiant faith and courageous strength. Here at Faith Radio, we're monitoring the bad news while holding fast to the good news. The gospel is going forth. People who've never had a spiritual hunger are suddenly asking questions and seeking God. Faith Radio is uniquely positioned to lead people to Christ and nurture them in their faith. Will you stand with us? Your gift of any size keeps us going and growing. We'll send you a Faith Strong wristband as our way of saying thank you. Give safe and secure online at myfaithradio.com. Welcome back, Dr. David Murray is my guest, talking about his book, Reset, Living in a Grace-Paced Life in a Burnout Culture. Afternoons with Andy. 98.5 KTIS. 
usually that there's some initial pain involved and that's what makes people feel, oh, I can't do this. Well, you can. And really the, the choice is, do I take some short-term pain in order to have long-term pain or do I just stay in sort of low-level pain for years and years and years? So you can take something like, so busy, my boss demands so much of me. Well, you know, there are other jobs you could get. Yeah, but you know, I need to take more pay. Yeah, it's survivable. You know, yeah. Um, so that's your choice. Yes, you can be money rich, but time too. You can be my lungs and I just thought well that's two strikes three and I'm out so yeah. this has to be permanent and that, that's what really made me sit up and say right David some hard choices have to be made here and they went we're hard but the long-term benefit even the short-term benefit actually was just massive and, and I continue to reap the benefit of that today. And David would you think of yourself as a type A personality? Yep. Yeah, I would. And, and I think this is, uh, you know, it's all good stuff. Like, I'm in ministry, so it was preaching, it was teaching, it was writing, it was lecturing, it was counseling. It's all wow. good stuff. But, you know, too much is too much. It doesn't matter whether you're doing good work or sinning. <laughs> Both of them can destroy you. And we are limited creatures. And for me, it was really learning my limitations and realizing that was part of God's will for me, and that if I if this was beyond my limitations, God did not require it of me. And yeah, God can ask you to do things beyond your limits in the short term, but not in the long term. That kills us. And again, so we have a choice. We have a limited amount of gas in the tank. Am I going to just splurge it all in a few years, foot to the floor, and just you know, break that engine by revving it up too high for too long? Or am I going to live more economically, travel more miles eventually, enjoy the journey a lot more? Um, and that's the choice. And I've tried to make the second choice after some years trying to make the first choice. <laughs> and it is a much better way to live. Yeah. You talk in your book about warning lights. I'd love for you to comment on that. 
Yeah, the, the warning lights is, um, as men, you know, we don't like to see them in our car. No, oh, I hate with, that. You know, just put tape yeah, over the lights. That's, yeah, exactly. I mean, that fixes it perfectly. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> the... But, you know, we do the same thing in our own lives as well. God, like for me, I had warning signs. I had, I had health issues that were growing. I had surgeries. I was in an accident in the car that was my own fault. Um, relationally, things were not as good as they'd been, say, with my kids. And, yeah, just just things that if I'd stopped long enough, I'd have thought, okay, this is a pattern. This is an accumulation but no, I just kept writing it off until, well, all the warning lights were flashing maybe and um, I wasn't paying attention. So God actually stopped me. So, uh, yeah, I think my from talking with different men have gone through the book, they find that chapter really a short, sharp shock. And most men who pick up the book kind of think they've got a wee problem. They might need some wee twe- tweaks to deal with. But once <laughs> they've read that, that first chapter, they kind of like put the book down and think, gulp, I am in serious trouble here. And it, I mean, I don't like doing that to people, but I needed it. We all needed it at times. And really without getting that, we're not going to deal with our issues seriously enough. Mm-hmm. You talk about spiritual warning lights, and and it might be your your personal devotions have decreased in length and increased in distraction. Maybe mm. you check email uh, before you even greet God in the morning, because you mm. you pick up your phone before you even uh, greet greet the Creator of the universe, um, and you don't have that same ongoing prayer relationship with God that you used to have. So there there are all kinds of indicators that you're down. Your trajectory is not good. Yeah, and I mean, if I can go back to myself, I was still doing my devotions. I was still reading my Bible. I was still praying. Now, time was getting a wee bit shorter, yeah. Um, But it was more about the depth of the time rather than the length of it that was suffering. Mm -hmm. So it just become more mechanical, routine, habit. And I wasn't really connecting in a in a deep, intimate, personal way with God. Um, so, you know, God in his mercy had kept me as it, from falling into sin. But, you know, this is like the core of the Christian life, a, a, an intimate, personal, living relationship with God. And, okay, you might not be doing X, Y, and Z, but you're, you're, you're failing in this, um, in connecting with the source of our life and power and therefore running on fumes ultimately, which again is very dangerous for us. So, yeah, that was an area for me. It physically was where it mainly manifested in myself. Other people, it's more emotional in terms of depression, anxiety. Other people, it is moral. Ministers, pastors, I'm afraid too, fall into sin when they work too much, even in good stuff. And, and relationally, sadly, you know, many men neglect, say, their marriage. And, yeah, they, they have success at work, but their their relationship with the, the wife they married because they wanted to spend time with her. And, yeah, you know, spend less time with her than they ever did before they were married. It's, it's very sad. Yeah. Huh. Dr. David uh, Murray is my guest. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion on his book, Reset, Living a Grace-Paced, Living a Grace-Paced Life in a Burnout Culture. Uh, we'll take a break. Be right back.
Welcome back to the show. Dr. David Murray is my guest. He's written a number of books. And because I have him on the line and because we're talking about grace, uh, living a grace-paced life in a burnout culture, which is one of his books called Reset, I also think uh, because we're living in this time where there's a lot of reflection time, there's unemployment, there's financial worries, there's all kinds of things collapsing around people. And it is not um, unusual for people to uh, gravitate into uh, feeling overwhelmed, to say the least. And sometimes that uh, starts manifesting itself in depression. And I know you've written a book about this, and it's called Christians Get Depressed Too, Hope and Help for Depressed People. And I know you're you know, not an expert on depression, but you have written beautifully about it in terms of uh, you've come into, to the defense of Christians who are depressed. Um, so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that, David. Yes. Well, the title reflects the fact that many Christians think that Christians don't get depressed. In fact, I have to be honest, that did used to be my opinion in my young life and even young Christian life, even young minister's life, I'm afraid. And therefore, wanted once I found out otherwise through depression coming into my own family and affecting some very godly people, I decided that um, I needed to investigate this further. And it, it resulted in a series of lectures, and eventually it turned into this book, Christians Get Depressed Too. And it's really to help try and remove the stigma associated with depression. And it's, it's maybe even worse in the church than in the in our society to show that really we, yes, there can be spiritual causes of depression, no question. King David did that. He fell into deep depression when he had fallen into sin with Bathsheba and uh, murdering her husband. Uh, but there are also other depressions in the Bible that are not the result of, of personal sin. You think of, say, Elijah. Uh, God gave him food and drink and sleep, and uh, that was what he needed. He was just exhausted. Uh, you think of Job. He did not sin and yet fell into a great depression, understandably, after so many losses. So depression can be physiological, can be psychological, it can be situational. And the wonderful thing is God has provided a, an amazing number of resources. So it's not just, oh boy, we can be depressed too, but we can get better too. And God has provided spiritual resources, um, biological resources, medicines. He's provided uh, relational resources. He's provided uh, many different areas of life which can enrich us and build us up again. And that's what I've seen many, many times with people I've been counseling with depression that God is generous, he's kind, he's gracious. Yes, he lets his people fall into depression at times. Sometimes his people put themselves into a depression, but he is able to heal. Scripture is a wonderful resource. And uh, even when it's not sin that uh, somebody that's brought someone into depression, we still need scripture to support us and strengthen us as we use other remedies. So it's, it's, a, it's a bleak experience, but it's also a blessed experience because it shows us our weakness, it humbles us, and it casts us upon God. And, and we go on our way afterwards when we've recovered with a, with a new dependence on God and a new sympathy for other people as well. 
And uh, that's what I would love to cultivate through this book, uh, just a, a deeper sympathy for people mm-hmm. through a deeper understanding of the problem. Yeah, that's a beautiful approach, David. One of the things I liked uh, in your in that book is uh, chapter five, you give out, I think it's the five keys to developing um, a way to kind of reduce stress and anxiety that can lead to depression. And I think there's a bunch of R's in that chapter, isn't there? It, which book are we talking about? <laughs> Uh, oh, the Are we uh, back to reset or no, no, no. We're still talking about uh, the Christians get depressed too. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I like to help people think through depression in a holistic way, and I, I like to address the the physical, the emotional, the mental, the spiritual, and the relational. And so the book is a very short book. It's a sort of depression one hundred and one. Mm-hmm. It's, it can be read probably in about an hour, and um, it's just a, a beginner's guide to the kind of areas that can get you started on the road to recovery. So, yeah, there's more that you can say for sure. As you said earlier, I'm, I'm, I don't see myself as, as an expert, mm-hmm. but somebody that can help people get started and begin to uh, climb back on the road to recovery. And the reason I just jumped on this because I th- think because there's so many people in a place where they're so out of their routine, and we talked about that a little bit mm-hmm. earlier, um, that that's one of the things that leads to depression is loss of routine. And yeah. then we have a hard time relaxing because how can we, we relax when we need to be doing everything in the world and then we have this anxiety? And so rest and, and trying to yeah. reprioritize our days is difficult because it's just a it's a it's a new way of living. Yeah, well, I mean, routine is certainly the first. Yeah, usually the first thing I deal with because you can take all the other remedies you like, but until you get a rhythm in your life again, you get a good timetable, you stick to it, your sleep will be disturbed, mm-hmm. and your um you you'll be falling asleep through the day. So routine is first. Try to get some relaxation in the day. I I liken life to a rubber band and we're just pulling it and pulling it and pulling it and we keep it pulled, stretched tight for way too long. Life begins to fray and eventually snaps. So we need times when we just let that band go. We we let it relax again and rebuild and renew. We also need recreation. Uh, Exercise, especially outside, is extremely good for our bodies and minds. I agree. Yeah. And, and, and then the things like, you know, rest, even just using God's gift of a, of a weekly rest day uh, to ease the tension of our lives, rest from technology and media. Uh, all of these things are really frying our brains. And we were not built to be, uh, to have our brains hyper stimulated in this way. And then reprioritizing, just examining your life, trying to figure out where can I reduce commitments and obligations, even good things. Mm-hmm. Eventually, you can get back to them, but you know, for the moment, you need to let go and just let God minister to you in the quiet and the silence and stillness. Boy, that's such great, great wisdom, uh, David. What's the best way to, to reach out to someone who's hurting? Uh, I always love hearing perspectives on being sensitive, being loving, being kind, and, and what would be your your best approach? Yeah, I think, first of all, listening is so important. We, we want to jump right in with words. 
you know, he, well, we know what's <laughs> wrong and here's what you need to do. Yeah. Uh, and a depressed or anxious person really needs a good listening ear. And then secondly, questions. Again, don't jump in with statements and assertions or even accusations, but just ask questions about, you know, what are, what's their life like? What's getting them down? What's worrying them? What are they thinking about? What are they feeling? What do they think is wrong? What Can you think of any areas that might have caused this? Can you think of any things you could do? So you're, you're really you're helping the person counsel themselves rather than sort of mm, coming in and saying, this is what you need to do. And, and yeah, eventually you might get there if the person's not making any headway, but start with listening, move to questions, and then just gentle encouragements that show sympathy, kindness, and understanding. Otherwise, people just shut you down. Mm-hmm. How do you tell someone with a, vic- a victim mentality that they've got a victim mentality? <laughs> that is a tough one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, yeah. That's an identity issue. People begin to just, you know, identify as a victim. I, I think the first thing I would do is I would take them actually to Christ and show what a true victim is. I'm not I'm not going to use that language, but okay. I think a victim has a very self-centered, self-focused mentality. We've got to start helping them look out, look at the suffering and the pains of others. And the best place to start is the greatest sufferer of all, the greatest victim of all, and show them you know, that kind of suffering. That just begins to recenter their focus. And you know, then we can begin to talk about the, you know, what he did for us and how that gives us a new identity. We don't need to be victims because he's been a victim. And he has suffered injustice so that we don't need to be embittered by injustice. So I think areas like that, but it's a long term. When somebody when somebody has really begun to see themselves as a victim all the time, it's a long term work to get them out of that mentality and begin to 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 turn them inside out, really, because it's very much a self-focused life. Mm-hmm. David, what a delight. Thank you so much for taking the time today to come do the show. Glad to do it. God yeah. bless you. And I think your next author, your next speaker might need my book if he's written 60 books in his life. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right. I'll, I'll encourage him to go buy your book. Thanks, David. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Good. God bless. Dr. David Murray's been my guest. The two books we chatted about are Christians Get Depressed Too and also Reset, Living a Grace-Paced Life in a Burnout Culture. Dr. David Murray. Take a short break, and then Dr. Ken Blanchard will be joining us.
Welcome back to the show. I'm awfully delighted to be bringing on Dr. Ken Blanchard to the program. He's been recognized as a premier thinker and writer on leadership for nearly four decades. He's written 60 books, including that One Minute Manager. And uh, he has, uh, since coming to Faith in Christ, has been just teaching and talking about how to equip people to lead like Jesus, which is, uh, I can't wait to hear more about. Ken, welcome to the program. Well, good. Nice to talk to you, Bill. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I heard it's uh, warm in Southern California today. Only about 84 or 5. Yeah, it's really too bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, Minnesota springtime is not all that bad. We were uh, excited to have you technically uh, coming to the Twin Cities to be part of the Minnesota Prayer Breakfast next Tuesday, but you're going to do it virtually now, so it's going to be exciting to have uh, you on the program as well. Yes, well, it's really sad that all kinds of Good things are being called off, so uh, I hope the cure isn't worse than the ailment. I know. We all miss the fellowship, don't you? Yes, it really is. Uh, somebody sent me this wonderful picture, a uh, video of these little kids all running around hugging each other, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and it said, what we need more of now. <laughs> That's so true. So I'm real curious to uh, hear some of your your uh, words and, and great inspiration on equipping people to lead like Jesus? Well, I tell you, I uh, was on the Hour of Power with uh, Robert Shula right after the one-minute manager came out, and and I had really kind of drifted from my faith. And uh, Shula said, Ken, I love the one-minute manager. But you know who's the greatest one-minute manager of all time? I said, who's that? He said, Jesus. I said, Really? <laughs> He said, yeah, he's really clear on goals. Wasn't it your first secret one-minute goal setting? I said, yeah. And he said, you and Tom Peters didn't invent management by wandering around. Jesus did. He wandered from one little village to another little village. If anybody showed any interest, he'd praise them, he'd heal them. Isn't that your second secret one-minute praising? I said, yeah. And he said, if people stepped out of line, he wasn't afraid to give them a one-minute reprimand and redirect them. He threw the money lenders out of the temple. He's the greatest one-minute manager of all time. And I went, whoa. And so as I moved on my spiritual journey, I I read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I just laughed because everything I had ever taught about leadership, Jesus did with these 12 inexperienced, incompetent guys he hired. I mean, you wouldn't have hired that lot. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, I've taught about how to lead the situational way for a long time. In his first commission, he tells him where to go, what to stay, what to do, and do this with dust off your feet. And then you see him move from directing to coaching to supporting. And then the end of Matthew, he delegates this, go and make disciples and, and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, and uh, <clears throat> he just uh, changes his leadership style uh, depending on the situation. And so it's, uh, so I got really interested and I found out that they weren't teaching in the churches anything about Jesus as a leader. It was mainly about his spiritual uh, leadership, and so we ended up starting a Lead Like Jesus ministry, which is now all over the world, uh, and uh, uh, just showing people what an incredible leader he was, because look what he did, because the important thing about leadership isn't what happens when you're there, it's what happens when you're not there, and uh, <laughs> look what's happened uh, when he left us, and left those 12, and then they left us, and, and here we are, how many you know years later, still talking about him and his way of operating. So a pretty powerful uh, leader. So uh, uh, that's why our ministry, I think, uh, 
is amazing. People all over the world, no matter what their faith, all love Jesus. They might not love Christians, but they love Jesus. <laughs> yeah, Ken, I've, it's so interesting because you had written so many books on leadership, but when you started to examine the leadership of Jesus, what were some of the things that kind of surprised you or or, or made you think, oh, i got to think about that a, a little bit more? Well, just uh, the variety of ways that he was able to use all the things that that we uh, we teach. And, and uh, you know, I mean, because, I mean, just the way he dealt with Peter is an example, you know, I mean. Uh, he would praise him, but the next minute, you know, he'd get behind me, you know, and he'd, <laughs> right. he'd, he'd, he'd right. redirect him, you know? Yeah. And so he, uh, we always say you got to use different strokes for different folks, but we also say you got to use different strokes for the same folks <laughs> in different aspects of their, their job and what they do. And so it was just incredible <laughs> the way he built that, that team. <clears throat> and really, uh, you know, got them to make a major impact. And actually, you know, you talk about committing uh, to a, a, a vision when somebody's willing to give their lives for the vision. And he he classically modeled, you know, which is I talk about a lot now, servant leadership, you know, mm-hmm. which to me, we're in desperate need of servant wow. leadership in this uh this country. And a lot of times when I talk about servant leadership, initially people think I'm talking about the inmates running the prison or trying to please everybody or some kind of religious movement, but they don't realize that there's two aspects about servant leadership, which Jesus recognized. First is vision, direction, and goals, you know, because leadership's about going somewhere. And this comes from the hierarchy, you know, and and, uh, Jesus gave a very clear vision for his disciples what business were in come with me i'm going to make you uh you know <laughs> disciples of men make fishers of men and then uh the picture of the future is if you do a great job you'll make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the father and son and the holy spirit and then what are the values you know love god with all your heart and love thy neighbor as thyself those take care of the the, the ten commandments and uh but once the vision and direction is is clear, the next thing you do is you uh, move to the servant part of servant leadership, because now you have to turn the the traditional pyramid upside down, and now you work for them. And he symbolized that so incredibly in the Last Supper when he got up and had a bucket of water and started to wash the feet of his disciples. And he was really clear with them, you know. He said, even I have come to serve not to be served, just as I have done for you, do for others. And uh, so uh, he, he models servant leadership. And and we see around the world so much self-serving leadership uh, that it's really kind of uh, sad uh, to see. And we really need it. I mean, you know, take a look at Washington. You know, here everybody's, you know, arguing with each other and nobody's solving problems. Say, I think they're forced to now that we got this covid uh, thing, but uh, certainly in the past, it hasn't been what I call a servant leadership environment. Mm-hmm. And Ken, Jesus obviously led with love. Um, how does that fit into leadership in business world? Well, to me, that uh, servant leadership is love in action. And okay. The way that play, plays out is that the, the companies that really adopt servant leadership, they think their number one customer is their people. And if they train their people, 
They empower their people. They love on their people. Then their people go out of their way to take care of their second most important customer, the people that use your products and services. And then they become raving fans of your organization, uh, and they become part of your sales force. And that takes care of the uh, profit and the ownership and all of those kind of things. See, a lot of people who are self-serving leaders in organizations, particularly in business, they think the uh, reason for business is to make profit. No, profit is the applause you get (laughs) for creating a motivating environment for your people so they take care of your customers. I love that. Are there a a company or an example of a company that you you see who are really doing uh, servant leadership well out there? Yes, only the leaders of all the industries, you know. So Southwest Airlines in the airline industry, I wrote a book with Colleen Barrett called Leave with, Lead with Love. Love is spelled L-U-V because they're on Love Lane. And, uh, <laughs> you know, they started flying out of Love Field and, and all. <clears throat> Nordstrom's is a classic example. You know, you have a problem and you go to somebody and they say, no problem, I'll take care of it. Where when you go to a self-serving organization you got a problem you're talking to a duck they go quack quack it's our policy quack quack i didn't make the rules quack quack you know uh. you want to talk to my supervisor quack 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 we call the supervisor <laughs> ducks the head mallards you know and and uh so uh you can take a look at disney the way they run their their parks you know it's all about uh the customer and and but they what train their people and, and their values and all. Uh, uh, I've worked with Wegmans, the grocery, chosen the number one com- company to work for uh, a year or so ago. And uh, and they're another example. Uh, uh, I think if you look at, uh, um, you know, the, 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 the great coffee uh, place. Uh, I'm blanking on the Starbucks. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, their president has written about this kind of stuff, you know. And, uh, and so when I, you know, Sonovas, uh, chosen the best company to work for so often by, uh, uh, you know, the magazine that they asked them to stop a- applying and they, and they put a, a special all-star list, you know, uh, Jimmy Blanchard's no relative of mine, but I would adopt him in a minute. I mean, they just completely use servant leadership running uh, Sonovas and financial services. So uh, when people say, well, who does what you say, Blanchard? I said only the, the leaders. I'm I'm working on a fun book that now you'd enjoy <clears throat> called Duh, D-U-H apostrophe. And the subtitle is Why Isn't Common Sense Common Practice? Mm. And uh, that's what I want to know. I mean, because here's all these leaders doing it. Why aren't the rest of them? <laughs> no, that's a great point. It's a great book. I, I'd be curious to uh, get my hands on that. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious, you, you personally, now, have have you always been a goal setter in your life, your personal life? Well, I've always been really interested in people and how that really works. I, I had an interesting upbringing. I grew up in New Rochelle, New York, right outside of New York City. And I went to a 95% Jewish elementary school. The okay. Jewish holidays, they put us all in one room, and I re- retired the Goya of the Month Award. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then we had, Merged, merged in the junior high school with a 95% black elementary school that went to the Supreme Court in 1961 to test a neighborhood school, and that's what started busing uh, in the community. And I was a basketball player, and I was bright, so I won the 
elections for all the compromise candidates. <laughs> and I remember my dad was an admiral in the Navy, and I <clears throat> came home, and I won the president in seventh grade, and I'm all pumped up. And my father said, well, Ken, this begins your leadership training. He said, now that you're president, don't ever use your position. He said, great leaders are great because people trust and respect them, not because they have power. Mm. And, uh, and he started to really train me on on that. So I, you know, got to be pre- vice president of the, of the junior high school and president and then chosen to give the graduation speech and then president of sophomore class, president of junior vice president of the school and president of the high school and give the graduation speech. So I really had a lot of opportunities for leadership and I uh, just got fascinated by it, uh, particularly with my father. And then my mother, she was something, she said, don't you ever act like you're better than anybody else, but don't let anybody act like they're better than you. God didn't make any junk. There's a pearl of goodness in every human being. Dig for it and you'll find it. You know, so I think that's just fascinating, I think. Your parents uh, really offered some profound wisdom and, and at yeah. a young age, and you remembered it. And, and then to this day, you, you can recite it instantly. I love it. Yes, and I just celebrated the 59th anniversary of my 21st birthday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you're young at heart, which is great. All right, uh, Ken, let me take a little break. Dr. Ken Blanchard is my guest. We'll take a, a little break. We'll be right back with lots more. Welcome back to the show. Dr. Ken Blanchard is my guest. He'll be the featured uh, speaker at the Minnesota Prayer Breakfast, which is all online this year. You can learn about that at minnesotaprayer.org. It happens Tuesday morning. And Ken, I love some of your sayings. One of the ones I know you still use quite a bit today is, none of us is as smart as all of us. Say more about that. Well, that's just so uh, true if you're going to be a service leader, what you want to do is you want to bring out the best in everybody around you. Uh, and, uh, you know, while Jesus, you know, was the smartest <laughs> person who ever walked, he was constantly uh, utilizing and bringing the best out of his people. And and even when he got that one disloyal disciple, I mean, look who he grabbed, I think, who's to me is the 12th disciple, is Paul. I mean... <laughs> pretty amazing guy that that he turned around uh and uh because he realized he couldn't do it by himself he needed needed people none of us is as smart as all of us yeah what are what are some other sayings that you have enjoyed uh, using over the years oh i'd say if somebody said to me blanchard i'll take everything away from you you've been teaching uh, concepts what one would you hold on to i think the one i would hold on is that the the key to creating a great organization is to wander around and see if you can catch people doing something right <laughs> and accent the positive and give them a one minute uh, praising. So uh, uh, I really kind of like that, you know? Yeah. And, why, why do you think uh, managers and leaders are, are reluctant or they're, they're stingy with praise and affirmation? Cause it really does go a long way. It means so much to people and it really costs nothing. Well, the biggest problem, uh, Bill, is the human ego. 
<laughs> which S stands for yeah. edging, edging God out. Yes. And there's two ways that ego shows up. One is false pride. When you have a more than philosophy, you think you're brighter than and smarter than people. And the other one is that people wouldn't think was an ego problem, but it is is fear or self-doubt when, uh, you know, you think that you're less than, you know. And uh, when you're focused on yourself, uh, you're not thinking about other people at at all. And, uh, you know, praising and wandering around is not there. You're in your office because all the brains are in your office. But what's really interesting is I've found, for example, the, the leaders that I've found who are real problems in organizations, they're all scared little kids inside wow. because they don't feel really good and comfortable about themselves. And so we have we have a 12-step Egos Anonymous program that we started. Uh, <laughs> that and, makes me laugh. Uh, because, well, it's, a, it's the biggest addiction there there is, you know, I mean, because besides false pride, you know, why— why do you think people drink too much or engage in a lot of sex or drugs and all? Mm-hmm. They're looking for an outside agency agent to make them feel good about themselves, you know? And so that, uh, you know, the, the key to overcome false pride is humility. And a lot of people, you know, thought that that's a weakness, but I think it was C.S. Lewis or one of those great guys who said that people with humility don't think less of themselves. They just think about themselves less. Uh, and, uh, you know, how many times did, did Jesus talk about, uh, that, you know, if, if you focus on yourself, you're in trouble, you know, it's not about you. And even I have come to serve, not to be served. Mm. And uh, so it's, uh, so the ego is, so you get a kick out of, we got, uh, some managers now that when they have their weekly <laughs> meeting with their, their team, they start off with an egos anonymous meeting and, <clears throat> And a lot of people would say, wow, I wouldn't want to do that. Because a lot of people think you you don't want to show your vulnerability. Well, uh, Colleen Barrett, who took over as president of Southwest when Herb stepped down years ago, she has a great saying. She said, people admire your skills, but they love your vulnerability. Mm. And if people uh, realize that you don't have all the answers and you'll admit that, uh, it really is. My son's just taken over the president of our company. We have 300 plus people and we're dealing with this whole virus thing because we're down about 40% in our sales and all. And and uh, his number one value is that he told the, the folks when he took over his presidency is transparency, you know, and he said, I want to, you know, make sure that you understand, you know, that I don't have all the answers, you know, I'm, I'm vulnerable and I need you all. We need to figure this out together. And people are just thrilled uh, in this time that they're getting that kind of leadership so that people can really come forward uh, and get get out of your own way. None of us is as smart as all of us, for, for sure. One plus one is a lot greater than two. Mm, I love that. Ken, are, are leaders uh, bad at receiving criticism and feedback? Well, if their ego's in the way, they yeah. are. Yeah, I mean, as you're talking about that ego is anonymous, I think yeah. it's really interesting because yeah. people have a hard time receiving criticism, feedback, and, boy, if they don't receive that, there's going to be trouble. Yeah. Well, it's so interesting. If you see somebody, you know, like some of the people I've I've mentioned, you know, if somebody gives them feedback, their response is, could you tell me more? Could you be more specific, you know? You know, I want to hear more. And, uh, wow, that just really gets to people. Wow, you can really give the person feedback where uh, so often 
people go in to give somebody feedback who's not behaving, you know, in a certain way, and and they and they get thrown out of the office, you know. Yeah. And uh, so uh, it's a it's a it's a real issue. So you got to sometimes give feedback up the hierarchy. I I, uh, I worked for a dean one time when I was at the university who talked a lot about uh, participative management and all. I just didn't practice that and. Faculty members would go in and take issue with him, and he'd throw them out. And so if you're going to give somebody feedback, you have to recognize no matter how well you do it, you're going to take something from the relationship. And I look at good relationships like money in the bank, you know, and you got to have some deposits first before you can withdraw. Otherwise, you need a mask and a gun. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. You know, and and, uh, so uh, I decided if I was going to help this guy, I had to develop a relationship, which I didn't have at that time. So I stopped him in the hall, and he had written a lot, and I was just beginning my writing career. And I said, George, you know, you've written a lot. I'm working on a, a paper I want to submit. Would you be willing to look at it and give me your feel? Oh, sure, I'll be happy to give you feedback. And I went to his office, and he had flip charts and all. And So I had about three sessions with him on writing. And he said at the end of the third, he said, Ken, what do you think we should do? with the jerks we have in this school. And the really big word there was, what do you think we should do? Because now he saw me as part of his team, and I could not only make suggestions on some of the things that we could do, but some of the things that he could do, because I had money in the bank. Yeah, what did you do with those jerks? <laughs> we, we had fun with them. We, oh, good. We, <laughs> no, but we, we really got got the right of clear vision for the place and all that kind of thing, which yeah. people could then buy into. And and he started to show that he was vulnerable. Yeah. So God can give people lots of skills and gifts and talents, but nothing can replace character and integrity, right? That's right. Yeah. And that's a hard issue. I mean, when we teach Lead Like Jesus, we start with the heart because that's where your character is. And that's where the, the question is, is, uh, are you here to serve or be served? And <clears throat> How many times did Jesus talk about the heart, the heart in the Gospels a lot? Uh, because it's really the, the whole key uh, to uh, being the kind of person and leader that he would want you to be. Mm-hmm. One of the great things when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, there's not a lot of people that get to say that at the end of their life, do they? I mean, we all have yeah. unfinished projects or things that we didn't get done or you know, talk about a leader that came to do what he said he would do and got it done and said, it is finished. That's right. Yeah. That's, that's for sure. Yeah. And, and, and even at the end, what is he doing? He's trying to bring people aboard. I know. It's fantastic. Put a cross with him. Oh, it's fantastic. So, Ken, I'm so delighted that you'll be part of the Minnesota Prayer Breakfast, which will be online, and that's going to be uh, broadcast on Tuesday morning, this coming up uh, Tuesday of the 28th. starts at 7 o'clock. You can go to minnesotaprayer.org to watch the whole thing, and it starts at 7 a.m. And I know you've got a lot of friends in Minneapolis. Anyone you want to say hi to real quick? Sure. Well, you know, I, Harvey McKay is a good buddy of, of mine, and, and uh, you know, so, so he, he's, he's been there. and There's been other folks uh, around there. There's just a wonderful group of people I've always been enjoyed uh my my work uh there and and uh and working with people there yeah 
Well, it's just a delight to uh, meet you and spend this time together. Have a wonderful weekend, and we'll see you Tuesday morning. All righty. Thanks so much. You take care of yourself. God you bless. Thank you, Ken. Dr. Ken Blanchard has been my guest. You can go to KenBlanchard.com and also LeadLikeJesus.com. And uh, that is uh, all our show for the day. Thank you so much for listening and supporting Faith Radio. It's just been great being together with you. Have a great weekend, and I'll see you Monday. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.